0: Welcome to my life Khsid is applied episode 452. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch bin Ben and Miriam Baskayas Sarah Altez, Kusil Ben Leia Rochel and Rachel Bas Liba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todris Ben Miriam and Sara Bas Rachel Altes. Today was the 15th of Sivan. So let's begin with that. Chesidah is applied to the 15th of Siv. So the 15th of Siv in general is the 15th of every month is Kay Bashlamusa. It's a full moon. So it always has special significance, especially that the Jewish people are compared, Damim Nelevanah, Mayim Nelevanah, compared to the moon, we count by the moon, we sanctify the moon. So the full moon symbolizes the fullness that's why the holidays, the fullness of the divine revelation. That's why the holidays are all on the fifteenth of the month: fifteenth of, of Tishrei, Sukkot; fifteenth of Nisan is Pesach; the fifteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth of Adar is Purim. Fifteenth of Av, a special. The fifteenth of Av, the full moon after the destruction of the temple. But there's something specific in the 15th of Sivan connected, specifically to Chassidus, Chassidus applied, and that is, that was the day that the, Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe was arrested in Tofresh Pei in 1927, arrested for counter-revolutionary activity, which meant basically doing everything he can to uphold and strengthen Yiddishkeit after the Bolsheviks, the Communists, did everything possible to try to eradicate it, God forbid. So this was the day he was arrested. And uh, obviously it was a, quite a sad day, taken to the prisons, tortured, and all that came, as the Friedrich Rebbe writes, in his, what he called, B'sachta Gehenem, tractate from hell. Literally, of his suffering at the hands of the Soviets, especially of the Yivsektsia, the Jewish communists, and then, miraculously, on Yud Beis, with Gimel Tamas, was the redemption, the Geula, which came almost a month later. So the 15th of Sivan ultimately turns out to become, like it is very often in Judaism, initially it may look like a very bad day, a negative day, ends up becoming the beginning of a new Geula, chaga ge'ula that, as the Rebbe explains in many Sikhs, opened up at Sinner a channel of new possibilities and new opportunities, both in the Soviet Union and then in the rest of the world as well. Actually in 1967, after the Six-Day War, the Rebbe actually said that Yud-Bes Tamas opened the door to help the victory of the Six-Day War, to that extent. We've spoken about it in the past, it's in the different that the Rebbe discusses this. So what is its lesson to us? that no matter what happens in life, and sometimes something looks like you may end up being in prison, whether it's physical or spiritual or emotional or psychological, know that that's the beginning of redemption. And every setback is always meant to bring out, every descent is meant to bring a greater ascent and elevation. And indeed, if you think about it, the full moon would be like not the appropriate day to be uh, arrested, but ends up becoming a full moon, the full mazel, the full light, the light and the power of, uh, of a Nosy B'Yisrael and a Nosy Ho'akel of Klal Yisrael. So we have to always look at the bigger narrative, not just the event of the moment, but what it led to. That's the most basic lesson. Since we're about the topic, let me just share a story. That the Tavshin Lamed Zion was 50 years from the Geulah of field-based Tammuz. So my father, who was then the editor and publisher of the Algemeine Journal, wanted to make a special bylage, which means a special supplement, about Yud Beis Thomas, 50 years. Pei zayin And he told the Rebbe about it, and the Rebbe said, good idea. And he was going to gather new pictures, and gather the story, and try to get new details. Okay. And he asked the Rebbe, my father asked the Rebbe, could the Rebbe, because he's doing a special supplement, and people always like something new, could the Rebbe share some things from that time? Because the Rebbe was around. The Rebbe was living then in Leningrad, and the Rebbe was already officially engaged, or was almost engaged to the Rebetzin, Mushka, they would get married later in Tafresh Petas, two years later, but he was involved. So the Rebbe said to my father that he should go ask uh, others, and he named who, uh, he meant the Rebetzin, the Rebetzin sister, Hana, and I think uh, Chaim and others that were around, and gather as much as he can, and then come back to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe may be able to add some things to what he's already learned from the others. So my father did exactly that, and uh, it was the Rebetzin Chaim Mushka that shared with him some details that were not known until then. And they actually happened on Tezvah uh, of Sivan. So um, the day of the arrest. So, so, so let me share one of the things that my, that the Rebidsons shared with my father. She said that that evening of Tezvah of Sivan, the 15th of Sivan, Tafresh Pei 1927, she and the Rebbe were taking a walk. She said there was a bridge, I think a small bridge, somewhere in Leningrad they were walking over the bridge. It was a beautiful evening, weather-wise. Then they came to the house, came back to the Friedrich Rebbe's house where the Rebetson lived, Rebbe Sachai Mushke. And uh, as she walked in, the Rebbe waited outside until she walked in. As she walked into the house, she saw there were uh, people there. They were coming to arrest the Friedrich Rebbe. So she immediately ran upstairs to the window, and as the Rebbe was walking away from the house, she yelled down to him. She said, Mirchabin guest, we have guests. That was clearly an indicator that these guests were not more unwanted guests. And the Rebbe immediately understood. So he ran to Chaim Lieberman, who was the physical Rebbe's secretary, to tell him that there's trouble. And Chaim Lieberman, I believe that's what the Rebbe told my father, that, that, that later the Rebbe told her that he swallowed some, a lot of notes because there were a lot of secret plans and so on. And it was all dangerous because if they found anything, it could be evidence, so to speak, so he swallowed some of it, then he burned some of it, he got rid of some of it. They didn't want to burn because that alone would be a problem. So I don't think he burned. But they got rid of some of the notes. And that was the story. It was something that wasn't known until that time. When the Rebbe later, my father told the Rebbe, and the Rebbe said yes, as he remembers it very clearly. He didn't have anything to add. He says exactly as Musya said it. Musya is the Rebbe's name. So just the de demilsev for the day of Tezvav Sivan, one of the details that was revealed then in, the 19, in 1977, as I said, to 50 years from the Yud-based Thomas. That's Tezvav Sivan. And the lesson, as I said, is pretty clear. Many lessons I'm sure we can learn from it, but that is maybe the most important lesson, is to know that the story is a bigger story, and we don't always see it until we see the end of the story. And it ultimately led to the Gula. Now obviously we are still in Gaulas and we have Gimel Tamuz to contend with and 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 everything that has happened since. So we have to also remember that ultimately it will be the Gula. When I say ultimately, it should be immediately now. And Gimel Tamuz, which was also as the Gula, the Rebbe calls that, the, the day when the the sentence was commuted from death sentence of the physical to exile, ultimately it was completely removed and he went, off, back, went back home, Yud Beis Tammuz. So Gimel Tammuz also was not considered the best day either initially because it was better than death sentence, but it was still going off to exile in Kasturma, and so on. And ultimately that turned out to be the Aschalta of the Gula because that was the first step that led ultimately to the Gula, mitis, to the Gula of Yud Beis Tammuz and so shall it be now. Okay. This week is also Pasha's Ba'alei Ischalt. So let's talk about Ba'alei Yitzchot, some of the lessons from this week's parashiv. And a lot of questions that came in, and it's a good opportunity to welcome and uh, invite you to ask your questions. If you're new to this program, go to chassidahsupply.com. Well, actually, this is for everybody, but if you're new, I'm announcing it, chassidahsupply.com. We have a forum, completely anonymous and confidential, where you can submit any question. You cannot trace anyway who you are, if you want to add your email address because you want a personal response or in some way want to identify yourself, obviously you can do that, but you don't need to do that. And you'll also find there are plenty of resources, including the archives of all previous programs, as well as the essays and the creative submissions during the contests that we've we held in the previous years, as well as other material, including material both on Samach Vav and Ayyem and Sadiq Dalad and different Sheikh and Chassidahs that I've taught and I continue to teach a daily class in Ayyem Bays, which you're welcome to participate in every morning at 9.30 a.m. New York time, Sundays at 10 a.m. and uh, that the details can be found on ChassidahSupply.com, hisidits, a live Zoom and a live YouTube and as I said again many resources please take advantage of that. So, let's talk about Parshas Balayshchom. As I've often noted, this is a parsha that it's hard to say the word favorite, but it covers a very favorite, a very powerful theme that the Rebbe emphasized time and again, and, and the Rebbe will continuously refer to the beginning of this parsha in capturing this idea, and that is the idea of Avveda B'Koyachatzme, the effort that we generate, that we initiate. The human being, not that is given to you, but the one that you initiate through your efforts. <laughs> and it's based on the Rashi. Why does it say, <laughs> not <laughs> you kindle, you ignite, you light flames. <laughs> Why does it say, <laughs> to raise the flames, to elevate the flames? So Rashi explains from the Medrash. Because the mitzvah was that the Koyangatel had to wait until the flame, until the flame rose on its own. And when you light a flame, it takes a second for it to catch until it burns on its own. So he shouldn't rush and move to the next one. He should wait till it starts burning on its own. That's why Baal So the Torah changes a word. So the obvious question is, why is it so significant that it rises on its own? And if it burns out, what's the worst thing? You go back and light it again. Nah. No. Because lighting the menorah symbolizes and signifies all our Vedas ha'adam. What is the Veda of a person? The work of a person is to ignite and light the Ner Hashem Nishma Sa'adam. The soul, which is like the flame of God It also refers to the work we do in inspiring others to ignite and inspire others to light their, or ignite and fan their flames. And with what flame? The flame of ner mitzvah v'tere er. Mitzvah is compared to a candle, and ter is compared to light. So every form of education, every inspiration, every, every way of touching another person, including ourselves, is captured in the idea of lighting the a to be neris Lahair. Flames that illuminate, candles that illuminate. So the state is telling us that there are two ways to do that. You can ignite somebody, but they're not really empowered to stand on their own feet. Says the mission of a himidu harb, not just v'yilmedu. Don't just teach many students. Himidu. What does himidu mean? Himidu makes make them stand upright, make them stand on their own feet. So you can teach someone knowledge, information, data. You can answer their questions. And you can teach them methodology. Not just what to think, how to think. How to answer a question. How to approach a subject. So the first way, yes, you give them a lot of information. But can the students stand on their own feet? Can they light on their own? Meaning, if they're in a situation and the teacher is not there, can they answer a question where they taught a method? And that's a whole different level. That's not just teaching information, that's transforming, empowering the student, the child, ourselves. So that's why the tater comes and says, <speaking in language> that's why it's so critical. Because it's the real sign that you really had impact. It's a sign that you own it, that it's yours. <speaking in language> a person desires more one measure of their own, then nine measures that you receive from another even though nine is nine times as, nine times as much but it doesn't have the qualitative the echo internalization and integration that comes with something that you rise in your own you see it in education you see it in inspiring children students when you have them do something you challenge them incentivize them to do something their own project that they initiate. It's a whole different level of education. And of course, empowers them as they get older and they leave school and they go on in their lives. Whatever they're doing, they've been empowered. They've become transformed to be themselves now a flame that can in turn light other flames in the same manner. So that's the most obvious lesson. and was a fundamental principle in all of Teirah and all of Chassidus, and especially the Rebbe. As you see from the beginning, and after the Maimon Basil Lagani where the Rebbe said the famous words, Don't deceive yourself into thinking I'm going to do the work for you. You need to do your work. I will not deprive from helping. But you have to do your work. And that really is the secret of why something is eternal. People wonder the Rebbe is not physically here. How does Chabad, move on. Shluchim. Growing. Thriving. Because there's an empowerment. There's a shalheva Yes, it's coming from the kohen Godel. He lights the Meneir. But it's internalized to the point that we are not just on the receiving end, but we actually initiate. We're proactive. We make things happen. That's a tremendous lesson in life. And I can tell you that in all the years of my counseling people and advising, any issue... Of course, every issue has its particular complexion and has particular situation, case by case. But in every situation, what you really want to do is empower someone to do something that they enjoy, that they initiate, that they can feel, ah, I created it. There's there's almost nothing that compares. Maybe nothing that compares to that. Not just the satisfaction, to empower the empowering. It builds confidence. It builds self-esteem, and it's confidence breeds confidence. And it becomes you become on the offense, which is the best defense, instead of fighting demons and fears and insecurities and all that happens in life, whatever the reasons, suffering, pains and traumas that happen in life. The best way to counter it is not just to put it aside these fears, but to create a courage, a strength, a confidence that allows you to shine. And when you give off light, in that way, that's coming shall have a, may a flame of your own. You're empowered in completely different way, and is the best preemptive measure and preventive measure to many of the maladies and ails and ailments of our time. Finding that purpose, that idea that you are on a mission, you're a shlichus, you're sent here. You have a neshama that was given to you. You've given me a neshama, a purpose, a mission. You've renewed my contract, and you feel that confidence surging from within. So anything you're doing, if you, if you have that feeling, changes the entire picture. And if it's lacking, make sure that you have it, make sure you share it with others, children, friends, students, strangers, anyone, empowering, empowering them. More than just teaching them, more than just inspiring them, empowering them to rise on their own, to stand on their own feet. You may not as Hillel says. I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Then we say, Anila Atsmi Mani. We also need others. Obviously, we need the support, but the ultimate goal is empowerment. Okay, with that, let us talk about a few themes in this week's Pasha, questions that came in. Question number one is about questions about the man. So the man is what we read about in this week's Parsha We read, read, read about it also in Pasha. Beshalach. But in Baal Parsha the man. As we know, after the Jews left Mitzrayim, they were traveling through the wilderness. One of the miracles was that instead of having regular bread and uh, meat and other foods, the Hebrews sent lechem in ashamayim, bread from heaven. And the bread from heaven was called man. One of the reasons, because ma. What is this? It was a mysterious type of food. The Torah specifies how it fell in the morning and how it was designated to each one, the different elements in it. So there's a lot of aspects we can talk about the man. We'll talk about the few questions that were the First question was, why did the man adapt to the taste of each individual? That was one of the features of the man, that it adapted to the taste of every individual, which made it even more wondrous wasn't just neutral. The Torah te- tells us what kind of taste it had, its natural taste. But nevertheless, it adapted, and especially if they concentrated a certain taste they wanted, they have that taste. So one of the answers for it, so Chassidus explains, and I'm taking this specifically from the Maimodim, and Era HaTeirah B'Shalach, as well as in Ayin Beis, in Chelik Beis. Well, now it's more Chalakim, but in a previous edition, the end of Volume 2, the a long about man, connecting it to Shabbos. That's when the mani was manufactured in heaven. It fell on every day, but it was a Shabbos dika type of meichel. That lechem was a type of interface between the divine and existence. On one hand, it was a bread, lechem. And they ate it, and it sustained them. But on the other hand, it didn't need the digestive process. It didn't have waste. It was a lechem min it was like, the, like a lechem of Bittl of ma, man. So it was giving the Jewish people, as they left Mitzrayim, and they were becoming a nation for the first 40 years, or almost 40 years as the man fell, was to in, in, empower them. Talk about empowerment. It was something divine. So you find the man, constant paradoxes, that on one hand, it was actual something of substance. On the other hand, it was something mysterious. On the one hand, they didn't have to prepare it. On the other hand, they had to do certain things to, to internalize it. On the one hand, it could taste like anything. On the other hand, it tasted individually what the person wanted it taste like. So what's the purpose of it is, was to show both, both aspects. That there's a certain divine element that's above diversity of the people. But also, each person got it according to his needs and his taste. So it had also a primisdike element, and that's ultimately the goal. See, this explains these maimodim. The goal is to bring something of godliness, but not just remain makif, that everyone has the same experience, that each person according to their taste. So that's one of the basic reasons. So then, of course, the question is, so why does the Pasuk say that the Jews missed the five foods that they ate in Egypt? So here's how the question was was um, phrased, dear Rabbi Jacobson. In this week's passion in the, in the Diaspora, yeah, we read Balayshcha. We learn about the Jews complaining about the foods they missed. Esa, so what does it say? It says that the doga that they ate in mitzrayim asakishuim asavatichim asachotzer v'sabtzolim v'shashumim. And remember the fish that we ate for free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons or watermelons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. So if every food felt like the taste they wanted it to be, so why did they say they missed these tastes? They missed these foods. So the Gemara indeed asks this question in Yuma, in Hayom and Aleph, it's also in Sifri, and Rashi brings part of it. The answer is yes, it tasted like all the foods, except the foods that could cause that were, were difficult to digest or difficult for either difficult in general for the health of a person or difficult, especially speaking, the Rashi brings, uh, the, and difficult for a pregnant woman or for a lacerating woman, a woman who was nursing. There's two opinions in the Gemara there. One opinion is that the very taste, that the taste may have been like that, but it was not the substance of it. Or that the taste was also not like any of these particular foods. Because these foods were associated with things that were not, that, were, that could be destructive in some ways. So the Rebbe has a whole sikh on this, from uh, Shabbos Pasha Baal Eschan, Shlach Tov It's printed in Likut, the sikh volume 33, where he asks the question, why does Rashi bring about the nursing woman when in some places, it, tells, it says that these foods were also could be not good for the human body in general. So the Rebbe goes on to explain why that's the case. Because the whole point of the man was to give them a, something they wouldn't have a complaint like that. Because that, on the contrary, those foods that have a negative impact. So the man took that away. The fact that it bothered them meant that there was something because the foods were, for, for the, because the food with them was was fine for them. The problem was that it was only for the nursing woman. So they were saying, why should we be deprived? Because there's a few individuals that this can be not good for. Why should we be deprived of these foods that we were so accustomed to? And from that, the Rebbe learns out a tremendous lesson that sometimes for the good of one person, the whole community has to also recognize that. That you sometimes go for the good of one person. In this case... So that's why the man didn't have these tastes. So that's the exception. And as I said, the two opinions. So the person asks, like this. And that's why the Jews missed them, because the man didn't have these tastes. So the person asks, my question is, why man couldn't have tasted like these foods? What causes the fact that these foods can be, can be uh, problematic? Let me just read exactly the language in the in the sicha. The language in the Gemara, I should say. So he brings the two opinions. So there, the Gemara says, did it change? Did did um. Does just the taste change and not the actual substance or the chemical substance of these? Or also, altogether, and even the taste was not similar to that. So this really answers your question. You're asking why the man couldn't have tasted like these foods? What causes the negative effect? Is it just the taste or is it the chemical makeup of the foods? In other words, if the man really tasted like these foods, but was, wasn't actually these foods, would it have caused the same issues for, uh, for a nursing woman? for the children, for the babies? Or are we to learn from this that the man actually changed chemical structure to become the foods the man tasted like? So this is what the Gemara is addressing. The Gemara itself addresses these two opinions. The Rebbe doesn't really address that, the two opinions. What's the difference between them? But bottom line is, that's what the Gemara addresses. So you could say both ways. Remember, the taste also reminds you of what it's like. So maybe the taste itself is not what causes anything negative. They're difficult for a person who's nursing. So the fact is the taste also reminds. But you could say one opinion that the taste was a taste, but it didn't have the effects. But regardless, the Jews Jews complained because they said, "Why why should it be our problem? And the answer is because of the care for one individual, even if there's a few nursing women, all the Jews were taken, this was taken away from them, these tastes. But the end of the day is every other taste of food was absolutely there in the month. Okay. So that covers the month. Another thing we learned in this week's Pasha is about the Levim, the in the Midbar only. There was a Hira Shah that year that the Levim had to shave their bodies every day. So someone asked the question, why were the Levites, Levites commanded to shave off all their hair? How could having a hairy chest adversely affect the service in the Beis HaMidosh? So Chassidus brings and explains this, that some Tzedek and Derach Mitzvah Secha, Sefer Mitzvah Mitzvah, where it talks about that a Mitzvah, after he gets purified and cleansed, one of the things is you shave off his hair. So the tzemach tzaddik brings. This is morning from the Alt, based on the Maimon from the al Rebbe. All the paradoxes we find in Torah about here. Here you shave off the hair. The mitzera, same thing during the midbar the levim you shave the hair. Talk about women, sar isha erva that they cover their hair after marriage, but you don't cover the hair before marriage. A man is supposed to cut his hair short. A woman does not care to cut her hair necessarily short. On the other hand, a man grows a beard, and a beard is a holy, a holy item. It's a holy part of the person. So you see here, is here something to be cut? Is this to not, not be cut? And under what circumstances, and not circumstances. So briefly, he explains, here, in language of Chassidus, is Just as the hair grows out of the head, there's also hair throughout the body. We'll talk about that in a moment. So, in meichen means, because the hair doesn't have, obviously, any Meichin in it. But it's coming from a very high place. So, in Kabbalah, Chassidus, talks about, especially in Zehar, in Nidra Rabba, talks about different levels of hair, that hair symbolizes the Yud Gimel Dikna, the 13 strands, the Yud Gimel think of them like wires, like channels, that channel from a very high place, Kesser, the skull, Galgalta from which the hair grows, but it's rooted in a very deep place, in moichistema, and hidden superconscious intelligence. So it can only come in a very strand, whenever you need a very tzimtzumdike flow. So here is a symbol of that. So on one hand, it's coming from a very high place, and that's why you need it to be channeled in a very thin, think of it like a thin wire, a thin pipe. So that's why it has the paradox. On one hand, it's coming from a very intense spiritual place. On the other hand, it's, very bit simsum dick, the energy there. So, in a very controlled environment, the here is a very holy thing. But if a situation is not controlled, which means you're exposed to the toxins of this world, here also receives a lot of Tuma. Because tumma and tada go hand in hand. The holier something is, the more it can be abused. The more powerful something is, the more potent something is the more the energy, the negative side, the sitrachna wants to feed off of it, wants to nurse that energy. That's why you find wherever there's, wherever there's a lot of gedusha, there can be possible tumah. In dam, in blood, in here, in the holy of holies. Every blemish mattered so much because it's such a holy place. Think of a piece of dust on your finger doesn't mean much, but a piece of dust in your eye is very irritating. Revav Begat Talmud Chochem is considered a grave thing because it's a Beged of Talmud Chachim, it's a garment of Talmud Chachim, so a little stain makes a big difference. So we talk about hair, that's why. So in a case, for example, where sexuality is active in husband and wife's life in a sacred way, you have to be very careful. It's like going into the Holy of Holies and hair, therefore, needs to be very, clearly, very, very carefully regulated. And the same thing with the Mitzedah and the same thing with, uh, with uh, the Levim in the Midbar as he explains there. Levim in the Midbar was just a one-time thing. It's not something that they had to do all the time, but especially that first year, or those first years when they were in the Midbar, I should say, when they were serving. So every little thing had to be taken care of very carefully. This explains many things about here, which really deserves its own discussion. I don't want to go into it right now, because it's not the theme, but it explains this and many other matters. Okay, another theme in this Pasha, the end of the Pasha, is a story with Miriam. So here there's a story where Miriam, speaking to Tsipeda, learns, as Rashi explains, that Moshe had separated from her. Because Tepeda said when they heard that Elder the Midod were prophesizing, they heard about the, the Skanim that were um, raised to the level of prophecy. So Tepeda said, I feel bad for them. I feel bad for their wives now. And that's what Miriam learned because Moshe had separated, so she felt bad that those wives would also separate. So Miriam spoke negatively about Moshe's separation to Aaron, and in turn, she was punished with leprosy seven days, the whole end of the chapter. So a bunch of questions came in on this topic. I actually spoke about the story with Zepeda and the separating a few weeks ago. That's not what I want to address here, that's another discussion. We talk about Miriam. So a bunch of questions came in on this. So let me just address them. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you so much for your ongoing weekly My Life Qasida Supply broadcast. My question this week is about the end of Parshas Baal where we learned that Miriam spoke Lashon Hara about Moshe. According to the she had overheard Moshe's wife, Zepeda, venting when Elder and Midad were prophesying in the camp and said, woe to the wives of these men, who if they continue to prophesy, will become separated from Intimacy with their husbands. The way I have become separated from my husband. So dafka elder than me. That I mentioned the scanning before. So let's let's amend that. Thus Miriam knew that that Zepeda and Mesha were no longer living together. My question is whether we are taught that Zepeda was punished for venting in public about her marriage to other women. Surely her intimate life with Mesha shouldn't have been on public display to other women, and Mesha had wanted to keep it secret, evidenced by the fact that even his sister and brother didn't know. Why don't we see that she is punished for venting to others outside the marriage about her marital issues? Well, you can read the exact opposite. She wasn't venting at all. All these years, or how much time, I don't know how many years we're talking about. You're talking here, Pastor Balesko, so even a year, but any time since Matan Teda, she did not say anything. It was only because she was feeling compassion for the wives of Elder the Mita. So the exact opposite. To say that she was venting and she wasn't at all venting. She was speaking badly for them. She was feeling badly. So you could say it's a tremendous element of compassion. The actual discussion is that's true that in Taylor, and I discussed this a few weeks ago, in Taylor there's no concept of celibacy. On the contrary, and Sanhedrin has to be married. So Moshe is an absolute exception. You don't find anywhere a Rav, a Rosh Hashiva, a novi. And indeed, if someone, nafshei ben azai, is considered a negative, that he didn't want to get married. So Moshe is a unique exception because he was 24-7 a child for the divine. And indeed, it's not so simple. Obviously, Moshe did it according to the divine directive, but it's not so simple either. Because Sopeta did suffer from it. So it needs explanation as we discussed. That's what of Peter Was she was caring about other women here. And indeed, when it comes to the others, it does not say anywhere that they have to separate themselves. Obviously, there's a time every husband and wife needs to be separate. And there are times like Kim Kippur and other times that you're not supposed to be intimate. But that's not an ongoing thing. That's a particular time. And even that is not a contradiction to love. You could say, why can't people be intimate all the time? Because that's part of it. This part of It's part of the relationship. It's not always physical intimacy. There are other ways to connect. I have no doubt that Moshe connected with Zepeda in many ways. But this aspect, that was what she was concerned about. So she's not being punished for what? What did she do wrong? Miriam inferred and understood from that what came out of it. What happened next was, and that leads us to the next question. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, why was Miriam punished so harshly and humiliated in front of the entire Kal Yisrael? Farmed the entire community with leprosy for a private conversation she was having with Aaron, discussing how to help Moshe and his wife. Miriam didn't publicly embarrass Moshe. It was a private conversation with Aaron that Hashem was eavesdropping on, so it doesn't seem fair that her punishment was public embarrassment. And I'll read a couple of this with the next question. Why was Miriam punished for asking Moshe not to separate from his wife, but she was lauded and not punished for asking her pa- parents, Amram and Yecheved, not to separate, and disrespecting her parents by accusing them of being worse than Pari? So let's deal with one thing at a time, and then there's yet another question, a few more questions in this vein. So this has been discussed in different commentaries, different people understand, to understand. Remember... The fact that the tale tells us this is also critical. There are a lot of things that happened that we're not told about in the Tera. So here, there's a lot of different angles here. That Miriam was a tremendous uh, neviah, a prophetess, is clear. The Mrs. nephew she had. She was the one that actually told Amram when he wanted to not have children after the decree that all the male boys would be killed and thrown the river now by Pare. She says, you're doing worse by by not having children at all, you're doing worse than pare. Pare only decreed male boys. And you're also stopping girls from being born. And then how she was sent to watch over Meshud the sensitivity. We see by the by Shira Sayam, Sayyam, she led the women in song. She was an aviyah of the highest order. The fact that the teda speaks this way about Miriam has to tell us what's going on here. She suddenly changed. Obviously not. So a similar ask, a question can be asked about Moshe. The great crime of Moshe. The only thing that the trader tells us is that he hit the stone instead of speaking to the stone. And because he changed what God said, God said you can't go into Israel and all the consequences that came. from Hitting a stone and speaking to a stone are both equally miraculous to get water out of a stone. Try it out. Mosher, the first time Hashem told him to hit the stone. So he thought maybe he didn't hear. So he tried, he wanted to make a Kiddush Hashem. People are watching, he's speaking to the stone, it's not working, so he hit it. And yet, for a level of Mosher Rabbeinu, that high level, like I said before, the Vava Begat Hamil Chachem, when you're very high level, every little thing matters, especially when others are watching. Because Miriam was such a great woman, and it was in her compassion. She was caring about the wives and caring about Zepeda, but she was still talking about Moshe Rabbeinu, the man of God, the man who stood before God. And she did not check with Hashem or Moshe. So for another person, it may have been actually a tremendous act of compassion, as it was for her. her intentions were good. But she spoke to another person. I don't, know. whether it was completely private and no one knew about it, that's a question. Even if it was, but it was heard by another person. She didn't just think it. No, so it wasn't God eavesdropping. She spoke about it. So we're talking about such high-level people, even that subtly is something. So it sounds like a harsh punishment, but it was teach us all a lesson. Teach her lesson. Teach us all a lesson. Talking about a Rebbe, you have to be careful when you speak about a Rebbe. Even if you have good intentions, because you don't know everything. Certain element of bitl, we know Merida B'malchus, Mandemachve Kama Malka. Even if a person makes a little twitch in front of a king. Why? Because when you're talking Ein let's talk about the Ebeshton now. Every little thing, it's not a matter of how much you've done. A little thing, a little, a little blemish is already a very serious thing. Same thing with sadikim the Lebedem. Same thing with the Moshe Rabbeinu. And the taita is telling us because it wants us to understand the standard that we're dealing with here. Now the taita itself criticizes Moshe when it, when, like I said, about hitting the stone. But it's, that's the tater, that's the Eberster. That's not Miriam. So we're told the story. This is not to belittle or in any way be negative about Miriam. That's not the point. The point is on the contrary because of her great level. So that's why it's not a contradiction at all. So when you ask why, this next question, why was Miriam punished for asking Moshe not to separate from his wife, but she was lauded and not punished for asking her parents Amram and not to separate, and disrespecting her parents by accusing them of being worse than Pharaoh? That's exactly the point. That she was coming with good intentions. The same thing that drove her then, that Amram and should have children. And because they had children, was driving the same thing that Moshe and Tzapar should be together. The thing was, here she was talking about Moshe. There, it was challenging Paris Gzeda and Amram's logical conclusion that he should separate. So you'll say, Was Amram not like Moshe? Well, yes, he wasn't like Moshe. It was Amram, it was a tzaddik and everything, but he's not Moisha Rabbein. That would be the difference. But her driving ethos, her driving reasons are the same. And that's why it's not a contradiction. The same Miriam that was and Nefres there wanted to achieve this here, but she said something about Misha, inappropriate. Even on a small level, even subtly. So this answers, then comes the next question. Why do, so many, why do many women have so much respect for Miriam and look up to her as a hero when Hashem himself said Miriam needs to close her? be quiet and not open it for a week and live outside the camp with the leper colony. If Miriam was really a hero, I don't think Hashem would talk to her like that. So just answered the question. It's not a contradiction. When we talk about Miriam today, we don't talk about the story about Leitzchak. We talk about all the this, whole, her whole personality and including Baleska, actually this, what this story indicates actually her great level. The fact that somebody is chosen to be an example, the fact that she was at such a high level, that's why a little blemish made such a big difference. So actually you learn from this how great she was. Just how we learn from Moshe, Moshe was great because he changed one word about hitting the stone instead of speaking to the stone. Okay, so that's the end of the story is, the, is Miriam's greatness, not the opposite. But when you talk about a Rebbe, you talk about a Moshe Rabbein, you have to be careful. Why was Miriam punished for criticizing Moshe Rabbeinah's relationship with his wife, but Aaron wasn't punished? If what Miriam did was wrong, then Aaron was just as wrong for participating in it. So this question is also asked. It's true that Miriam was the one that initiated it, so that's but it says by Lashon Hara, that also the listener. Actually it also says the person you're speaking about. tlisot three people are killed through Lashon Hara. The person who speaks, the person who listens, and the person you're speaking about which would be, in this case, Moshe. So one of the answers given is because Aden right away acknowledged that it was not right for, of him to do so. And regardless, going back to what we said earlier, the point here was not about punishing them. The point was, Miriam said something she shouldn't say about the Rebbe of the generation, of the Nasi Ador, Moshe Rabbeinu. Adon, you could say, do I need to defend Moshe? But Anand did acknowledge, that's the general answer given for this. There may be other answers, if anybody wants to weigh in on it, on any of these subjects, please write in at chasidasupply.com and I Hashem, will try to address it further. Let's move on now. There's one follow-up, which I really addressed last week, but since someone wrote it, let me address it. Maybe the person didn't hear last week's class. So I'm referring you back to last week's episode 451. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, why should someone, why would someone become a Nazer? So that was in Pasha Nase. A Nazer is not allowed to drink wine and therefore can't make kiddush Friday night. The Torah says Hashem created the world in six days and rested on Shabbos and we are commanded to sanctify Shabbos by making kiddush. A nozit is being very disrespectful to Hashem and Shabbos by refusing to observe Hashem's commandment to make Kiddush. Being a nozit is a bad example for children to see because they may think it's okay not to make Kiddush. Being a nozit is a bad idea and should be scoffed. Well, the language is a little, uh, what should I say? Uh, let, me, let me rephrase it all. Last week we spoke about a nozit, the paradox of the nozit. The nozit takes upon himself a more extra stringencies because he did something that he feels needs correction. It's like tshuva. Generally, you're supposed to walk on the middle path, not to do more, not to do less. But if you go very extreme, sometimes you need to go to the other extreme to straighten out. But then another brings a karma khatas because it's a sin to do something. Because there's an element here that it came not from a regular, not from the norm. So though Anozer didn't sin, but the idea is, it's enough for Hashem Prohibited you from doing. Don't accept more. So this is not about making kiddush, not in kiddush. Another is not supposed to drink wine. That's what he took upon himself. But as a result, yes. As a result, he gets his tikkun, his repair. But it's not something that is looked at, everyone should be doing. And as we discussed this last week, that when it comes to these areas, it's case by case. But like anything, as a person goes too much to the right, they may have to go much to the left to straighten it out, until you get to the middle path, as the Rambam explains. Okay. Let us talk about this now. Since after Shavu, was usually the time, whenever the Rebbe would speak about, going the summer months beginning, school is almost over, people going to summer camps, bungalow colonies in summer. So the question is asked, about summer. How should we utilize the summer months? So, I remember as a child, we would always get the talks and tales, the shmuz and mit kinder. And there was always summer months. It says summer is a time where you are, you can you relax your body more, it doesn't have the same responsibilities, school and other things, in order to exercise your soul. That was always the, the theme. I don't remember the exact language. In other words, the summer months are not a time to take off from your nisham, it's a time to take off from your goof. What means your goof? Meaning all the different pressures that we have throughout the year so you have more relaxed time so basically that's what the summer is to use it more and indeed it says in in my modern it says that it's easier to serve hashem in the summer months the question is asked don't we find that one of the reasons we learn perkyov is between pesach and shavuos and then afterwards throughout the summer yesh is to counter the temptations, the taivus, and other things that come up in the warmer months. So it's not a contradiction. Because whenever there's more koyach, divine koyach, like I said, there's always the other side comes to try to uh, feed off of it. So the negative side comes in the summer months, and the warmer months, to abuse that type of time. So we have to be more vigilant. And that's why we have prekiovus, and we have other things we do to counter that. But at the end of the day, shemesh HaShemag and Hashem it says. When the sun is shining more, it's also a more Gilead Lukus, and that's why it's easier to serve God, because you don't have the harshness of winter. So that's the Aved of the summer months. What is our specific shlichas during this time? Is to use, exactly that, is to use these opportunities. And that's why you see beautiful to see many bungalow colonies or other places the shiurim in learning Teirah, they invite other people from other communities. It's not a time to take vacation from our vayda ruchnis, God forbid. We take vacation from our Veda gashmis. Some people take off of work. So now you have more time to learn Teirah, to do more mitzvahs, to work with other people, more ava sissro. Did the Rebbe say that during the summer months we are allowed to play baseball and other sports because the exercise strengthens our bodies? And with a stronger body, we will be able to learn more Teirah. Yes, absolutely, but he didn't say that the, you know, people play baseball also throughout the year. I mean, there is sports in yeshivas and in schools for the same reason. All these activities are meant to strengthen the body, but it's not an end to strengthen the body on its own. It's like he says in Tanya, just like when you eat and drink, the kavon of Hashem is to use that strength for learning Teda and doing mitzvahs. In the summer, there's more time for that, and that's why we have to use it even more for Gdusha. same ideas that we've been discussing okay next question completely of a different nature maybe it's connected also the rebbe speaks about more being more careful and sneeze things on the summer as well for the same reason because people are more lax it's summer it's warmer so you have to also and also the negative energies therefore come to feed off of it, nurse energy from it, in the language of Chassidus. So, have to be careful with that. So maybe this fits the next question. Is it too extreme to not allow pictures of women to be published in religious publications? In modern-day zealotry, such as deleting women, is modern-day zealotry, such as deleting women out of photos in religious newspapers, or placing stickers over advertisements that have photos of women, even when the women in the photos are dressed completely modestly and appropriately, is that a sign of too much gvura and not enough chesed similar to how the students of Rabbi Akiva behaved? And what is an appropriate way to correct this behavior and have the proper balance of chesed and gvura? Okay, so here we're touching upon, as you know, I don't get into halachic um, comments, meaning halachic decisions or rulings, that you have to go to your local rov, an authority that you trust and respect that will look into this halakhically. But I will lay out some general guidelines that give us some framework here, how to frame the question, how to frame the discussion. So there are there's a gemara, a famous gemara that talks about looking at even the picture of a woman. The Rebbe actually addresses it when the picture of the Rebbe was published. So the Rebbe writes to Arov, who brings the gemara and says, how could you publish a picture? And the Rebbe... Says that when it comes to the Rebbe, and on the contrary. All those, all those elements that are the Gemara referred to to negate, public, looking at a picture, don't apply to Chadekas, as the Rebbe explains it. But there is that Gemara, and based on that, there are religious so-called periodicals and magazines and newspapers that won't publish the picture of a woman. Now, is that correct? Is that an act of zealotry, or is it based on that gemara? So I would say each of them should talk to, and probably have talked to, their rabbanim, and the standards. Remember, tzinius is also the standards of a community. The fact of the matter is there are many newspapers and there are many magazines and online that people could see a picture of a woman. Unfortunately, you could see even more than that, much, much worse than that. But that's not what a Toyota person is publishing or a Toyota person should be looking at. But the question to print that a picture of a woman or a woman's gathering, that doesn't have anything that doesn't, that's not modest, that I would defer to the rabbis. So this could be a question that's up to the standards of a community. That's one way to frame it. And that's why one standard may not be in others. And you'll find some magazines, newspapers that are printed by Paul from a Jews and observant Jews that do have pictures and some that don't. And it's not necessarily a contradiction based on the standards of that particular community. On a personal note, being also the publisher and chairman of the Algemeine Journal, taking over my father's position that he did for so many years, he did print pictures of women. But there you could argue that Algemeine was not necessarily a frum newspaper. Even the publisher and the editor was religious, but that was not a standard. It was not to do anything, God forbid, to break halacha, or opposite of frumkeit. But for someone that doesn't feel that standard, they shouldn't read that newspaper. So everyone has to make that decision if you're a publisher. If that's your audience of people, that's their standard, then you probably won't do it because you want to have readers. So I think this should be spoken about again in a more balanced way, halachically, what is the right thing to do. It shouldn't be seen as a witch hunt against anyone who does, who does publish pictures like that. And the other extreme also, if someone that doesn't, they may have their good reasons and maybe that's their audience and that's what the Rabbanim say, we have to respect that. That's the tone I would suggest we take when we address this issue. And like everything, it could be resolved when you think that way. You don't want to look at something, you're totally entitled not to. If something doesn't fit your standards. You know, some people would say looking at any newspaper or magazine, even if from one is not, it's not lima da, teda. Lima da teda is looking and learning teda, not reading the news, even if the news is written by from Jews. If you want to really go standards, higher standards. So this has to be addressed, as I said, case by case, and by the right proper authorities, okay. So here's a question, it's a Chassidus question about God and nature. So here's the question. Why is Spinoza wrong when he said God is nature? When Chassidus teaches, the name Elikim is equivalent to Hateva, which means nature, the nature. Elikim is gematria, Hateva. Same numerical equivalent. So let's answer this question. So what Spinoza teaches is known as pantheism. God is nature, nature is God. And indeed, we do say Shem Kim is Hateva. Like we say the lashon, Hu That God is this place of the world. He fills all of existence. With his glory, he fills the entire earth and fire existence. However, there's another dimension, and that's where pantheism goes wrong. We also know there's Havaya. When we say Havaya Hu Alekim, what are we adding? If Alekim covers everything, why do we need to have him? Seven times in Yamkipah by Neilah at the end of Neela. In every blessing, Barachata Shamala Keinu Malachaila. Anochya sham elakekha. Vyedaita Yemka ki a shavesa levacha kiavayualakim. What's this avayualakim? The answer, the simple answer is because Avay refers to the other side of it. That God is nature, yes, but then there's the second half of the God is existence, but existence is not God. God is much more than existence. God transcends existence. It's like saying an artist, his entire being, his entire psyche, his entire existence, his entire identity is defined by his art. But even with a human artist, we don't say that. Because a human artist, we know, can create other pieces of art. He's not defined by this piece of art. More than that, he's not defined by being an artist. He's also a father. He could also be a teacher. He could be many other things. That's even on a human level. The Eibishter for sure so. Though he created existence, and he's one with it in the sense because he created it, but he himself is beyond it. And that's HaVayu Alekim. That the God that is completely beyond is also the God that's within existence. In the language of Chassidus, there's Mamala kalalmen that's the divine that fills existence, that permeates. The imminent energy, erpnimi There's of er, the, Kalman, the God that transcends existence. Sevev Kalalmin, shava, equalizer. But it's still Kalalmin, it still relates to existence. And then there's or asmos, that's higher than those two. So it's basically different divine dimensions. That's why we say, pantheism is wrong because it's only saying God is nature, nature is God. That means there's nothing more about God than just simply nature. That's the key thing to keep in mind. So the next question, another question that relates to this, if Hashem is everything in a complete unity, and therefore infinite, since we are part of Hashem, are we also infinite, but we just think that we are finite because Hashem's essence is concealed from us. So now that we understand the first point I just made, this is answered as well. No. The Aved HaSakadosh says, Chassidus brings from Amir Ibn Gabai. Kishem, the Abish, Mitzadet Shlemus, Mitzadet's completion, Kishem sheyesh lekeche b'bilti bal gvul. Just as he has the power in the infinite to create the infinite,. So too does he have power to create the gul. Because if you don't say that, if you don't say that, you are weakening, his, you are limiting. You're saying he's finite. Because by saying he's only to create the infinite and can't create the finite, that's limiting him. And the first finite he says is the ten spheres. So what is the point? The point is that both are true. Just like you say, that Havai, that is the divine that is beyond existence, there's also God created existence. And he created t- t- ten spheres. Or he was maitzel ten spheres. He emanated, imparted ten spheres. It's also, by the way, in Pasha Baal Eishcha, ruach The idea of atzilis that I will impart from the ruach on Moshe is the source of that concept of atzilis the ten spheres of adzilas being imparted from the ruach, that's from the levels that are higher in sof. So, therefore, the, both are correct. So, when we say Hashem is complete union, therefore infinite, Hashem's actus is infinite and beyond infinite. We are part of Chelik, Alekam and Malmamish. And you say, since you're part, Chelik also means Chelik. So, how do you explain Chelik and Aleka? So, we understand Chelik doesn't mean that God forbid God is made up of parts. It means we manifest the divine itself in the chalik. A at the And when you grasp part of it, you grasp all of it. So there's an infinite within the finite, so to speak, or in the language of Ayinbe, is that the finite is one expression of the infinite possibilities. So we're actually finite is a real thing. The Ipibarashi's of Shema and is that he created a finite structure is real. It's not an illusion. If you really go to the source of it, you realize that the finite, from God's perspective, is just another expression of the infinite. That's correct. And in that sense, when we elevate through our Veda we could come to experience that. The infinite packaged within the finite. But it's important to understand that we do have an element that is finite, at least from our perspective. And even from God's perspective, he recognizes and respects, we say, for example, that Kriyasam Kriya Samsov. zivug, to marry off a couple, to bring together a couple, is as difficult as parting the sea. Right? Well, for God, it's difficult to part the sea. He created the sea, he created land. But once he bound himself, so to speak, once he created the laws of nature, he himself does not defy them. He, doesn't, he suspends them, but only limit. That's why by Kriyasam, he didn't just say, walk through the water. A wind came and caused the water to stand like a, like a wall. Why do you need all that? Could have just made them walk on water. Or walk through the water without all this because as much as possible, God respects the very structures that he created because these are his structures. So it's true, a gvul, what we call, a gbola atzmis, is not real gvul because it's God choosing to limit does not mean real limit. When you can't jump up 20 feet, or you can't last and exist without eating for uh, for three days. Or drinking seven days. Or the other way around. Drinking three days or eating for seven days. That's a fundamental limit that we have. That's the structure. And when we talk about halacha, mitzvahs, Pesach begins at a time and ends at a certain time. And it's the difference between life and death. Eating chomets, not eating chomets. Or Shabbos begins at a certain time. These are Etched in stone. They're not something you say, oh, it's really bleak wool and you can find Shabbos in the middle of Sunday. And yet there is still a, the, uh, the infinite within that finite. But the finite is specifically designated. There's it's called Shiurim and Midis, the share of a mitzvah, when you're supposed to daven, when you're not supposed to daven. You can't over Yahimeh bottle carbonate. The day passed, you can't bring a carbon the next day or daven to, uh, next day for two days. So you see there are clearly limitations. In the highest level, the limits are also an expression of the infinite. And that's the key thing to keep in mind. That's why there's Havaya and Elohim. And we say Havaya, who alakim. Because ultimately they're all part of one unity, as this explains. Yechayla Sa'atzma, the Abish, it's all part of one God who's chosen to express himself in an infinite way, in a finite way. Sometimes they combine together, for example. Other examples where you find they overlap. The ultimate goal is to make a to make a, a home for yizborach, for etzem, for atzmos. We're in tachteinim, rabbim. is plural. In the lower, lowest abode with the lower levels, meaning this world. All the tachteinim within diversity to find that achdus, shmei Hashem, discover unity echad shmei saw Hashem alakeno Hashem achod that in the ches and the Dalit. Of the diversity of existence the seven heavens and earth and the four directions of east west north and south the aleph of aluf that makes echad and with that we'll conclude this uh episode 452 of my life city applied we're here every sunday 8 to 9 p.m Again, chassidusapplied.com where you can find all the material and also submit questions Everyone have a continuing chedesh sivan, chedesh to umim twins, the twins and the joining of fusion of heaven and earth, matan teira, as we go from matan teira into the summer months, this part of the world, and ultimately bring that Hashem achadu Khad, the gula Amitis vashlema, and may the efforts of spreading chedus, teaching chedus, including this program chedus supplied, be that final touch that tips the scales. Everyone, have a very good week, a healthy week, and a healthy summer. Be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at Hasidusapplied.comslash donate.